Lord, uh, thanks that though this earth and the world we live in is uh, under the weight of sin and death, uh, there are still signs of life all over. And Lord, your goodness is still stamped on everything you created. Lord, thanks that there's a day in which the redemption you provided through your Son will be fully realized. There will be a new heaven, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And Lord, those old shadows of sin and death will be gone forever. Lord, meanwhile, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to keep our eyes lifted up, as Jesus talked about in John 4. Help us to see what you're about. Lord, help us to remember that faith uh, for us is all about a relationship with a person. It's not a religious performance. It's not activities that we do. It's who we are by your doing, and it's the relationship we enjoy with you, the God of all life. Lord, as we look in your word this morning, I pray that your spirit makes real to each one of us the things you want us to hear and to come away with. In Jesus' name, amen. We finished a four-part series last week out of Ecclesiastes. We're back in John's gospel today. John chapter 6 is where we're starting. I confess, John 6 is one of my favorite passages in John, and yet on the front end, I just couldn't quite get going. Gail, I had a tough time. I don't know. Hopefully, we'll get a couple things out of the passage this morning. We'll be in John 6, 1 through 15. Later on, John 6 is best known for what's called the bread of life discourse. And if you remember, we talked about this before. John's gospel is unique among the four because it is, in a sense, it's not related to the straight kind of storyline that the other three, what are called synoptic gospels, are. This morning's passage, the feeding of the 5,000, is actually one of the few elements that's common to all four gospels. But John hangs his gospel on these large portraits, we could say, these seven miracles, seven signs, though Jesus certainly performed more than that, Remember, John hangs his gospel on seven signs, seven miracles, and John takes time to develop. John six, You remember John 5? It's one lengthy story and the interaction about one healing, the guy at the pool of Bethesda. Well, John 6 is one lengthy chapter. In fact, I think this is the longest chapter in John. And it's just about one incident, the feeding of the 5,000, and then the discussions that follow up on this. So we're back in John 6 this morning. We'll look at verses 1 through 15. If you've got your Bibles, feel free to open up because that's where we're parked. John 6, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to interject a few things as I read through because I won't touch on them at the end. We don't know how long this is after John 5. It's likely that this is weeks or months later. It just says after these things. John is not always concerned with chronological development. His is a thematic development. So this could be months later. But he's not in the south anymore. He's up in the Galilee region. A great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. By the way, you can read the same story and the same development in the other three Gospels and you will pick up elements there that aren't here. And I, I forget why I'm telling you that right now. Um, if you look at the other stories, though, you'll find elements that aren't included in John, some in John that aren't included in the other stories. One of them was in one of the other Gospels, this follows a healing, another healing. 
Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive even a little. Now remember, a denarii was a day's wage for a working man. So this is like two-thirds of a year's wage. This might be thirty or $40,000 in today's uh, finances or economics. And Philip says, even if we had thirty or $40,000, that wouldn't be enough to feed everyone even a little bit. There's a lot of folks here. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad, a little guy here, who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? In other words, well, there's a little food over here, but it's meaningless in light of the number of people that are here. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. About 5,000 men, a much larger group than that, though. Jesus therefore took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is of a truth the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Um, The miracle almost seems incidental, doesn't it? The way the story reads, it's just he took, he blessed, and he passed out. And by the way, he passed out enough from this small beginning to everyone who was there. Jesus of less left Jerusalem down in the south, and now he's up at the Sea of Galilee. In fact, Zach, I could have brought my overhead from the Sunday school class this morning. But if you remember, Israel's a it's a long, narrow country, and uh, it's the Great Rift Valley as part of uh, Israel. Do you guys know your geography there? Um, the Sea of Galilee is up in the north end of Israel. If Israel's this sheet of paper, the Sea of Galilee would be up here. And the Sea of Galilee is a freshwater lake. It's about seven miles wide, about 15 miles long, roughly. And it's fed by freshwater streams in what would be modern-day Syria and Lebanon. And then the Sea of Galilee flows down through the Jordan River, down into its terminus. Its end point is the Dead Sea. And this area is unique for one reason, among others, that this is the lowest point on Earth, the Dead Sea, is the lowest point on earth. It's about 1,300 feet below sea level. And this is called the Great Rift Valley, this area that the Jordan Valley is in. So Jesus, depending on the gospel accounts or passages you're reading, typically he's either in what's called the Galilee region, up around the sea where he grew up, or he's down in the Judean area, down in the south around Jerusalem. And he goes back and forth in between. Some passages like John 3 take place in the middle area, the area of Samaria, But that's kind of the exception to the rule. He's either up in the north, the Galilee area, or he's down in the south, the Jerusalem area. So he's up around the Sea of Galilee now. Now there's all these crowds that are following him. 
And you can imagine if you're Jesus, this is, and it's coming on towards the end of the day. And there's thousands and thousands, 5,000 men. This could convert, if we had women and children, this could be 15,000 people easily. It's large, large crowds. This would be like going out to Heartland Park to see a race. There's that kind of number of people present. Or if you went, I don't know, to some large stadium event. We're talking about those kinds of numbers. It's not a few people, it's quite a bit. And then with no fanfare, you know, no one else knows what's going on except Jesus asked everybody to sit down. And with no fanfare, all he does is he lifts up his eyes to heaven, he prays, he thanks God for the food, and then he distributes it. And he distributes enough that it keeps going and it feeds them all. Look at verse 11 and 12 related to this. The end of 11 says, He distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, and he goes on for there. You remember when he talks to Philip and to Andrew, they're talking about, Philip says, you know, even if we had a huge sum of money, it wouldn't be enough to feed these people, even, he says, a little. If all we wanted to do was give them just a little something to keep going, we wouldn't have enough money if we had thirty, forty thousand dollars not even enough for a little for each person. But look at 11 and 12, what it says. When Jesus blesses and gives thanks and passes out, it says, of the fish as much as they wanted. And then it says in verse 12, and when they were filled... You know, the disciples, they're thinking little. They're thinking, you know, man, if we had a whole bunch of money, we could feed them maybe just a little. Everyone would get maybe just a little. Or about the amount of food they've got, they say, you know, this is what we've got, but what's that among so many? But when Jesus performs the miracle, he doesn't feed them just a little. They they get as much as they want. They get to eat as much bread and as much fish as they want. They all get filled up. They're full. They're not still hungry. These fish are thought to be the small kind that they would pickle or salt. Barley bread, if you were a Jew in this time, barley bread was the bread of the poor people. The wealthier people ate wheat bread like we do. The poor people ate the cheaper bread which was made from barley. And a typical meal would have been a poor bread, a rough barley bread, and salted dried fish. And of course, you know, if you lived around the Sea of Galilee, fishing was the industry, and this would have been a common meal. They weren't looking down their nose at this. I'm not undermining the value of the meal itself. Just that Jesus takes this little common meal, and everybody gets enough out of it that they're full. It's just a great reminder to me, when God gives, he's not stingy, he's not mean or little, He's not niggardly in the way he gives. He's not resentful. You know, when we looked at Ecclesiastes, one of these key elements of life, we talked about enjoying things on earth or the pleasure God gives us. You remember one of the verses was from Paul to Timothy, and he said, God who richly gives us all good things to enjoy. Well, the disciples related to this meal, they're thinking just a little, what could we get by giving these folks if we could give them anything? And Jesus isn't concerned with minimums. He provides enough that they are all full. They're fully satisfied. Not only that, but you remember what he does at the end? He tells them, guys, 
everyone's had enough and more than enough. So they gather up the scraps so that there's no waste. And they gather up 12 baskets full of leftover food. I don't know about you, but I love leftovers. You know, maybe this was their breakfast or their midnight snack or whatever. But a key point here is that when Jesus provided for them, it wasn't a little. It was as much as they wanted. And it was more than was necessary. So they all took leftovers home, so to speak, or the disciples gather up these baskets full. That's a great reminder that though God is generous, certainly, he's not wasteful. Jesus wasn't wasteful. In fact, he says, so that nothing's wasted. You know, this is like parents telling their kids when they go through the food bar or take as much as you want, but eat what you take. In other words, there's plenty of food. Don't hold back. Eat as, eat as much as you want, but we don't want to waste any. And that's essentially what Jesus did here. Thousands and thousands of people, and the disciples' mentality is, what would be the least thing we could get away with? Jesus gives thanks, and everyone gets their fill. They eat as much fish as they want. They eat as much bread as they want, and then they gather up the fragments so that nothing's wasted. I love this. When we pray to God for things. We're praying to someone who's generous. I've mentioned this in the past. Do you remember in the uh, parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 that the story centers on the prodigal son, the one who leaves dad. He really insults his dad, writes him off, takes the money from dad and runs. And he goes and has a, the kind of wild life that he thought he wanted. But he comes to his senses when the money's gone. Do you remember? And he comes home. And dad, what's he do? He welcomes him back in. And he throws a feast. He throws a celebration. And then you remember older brother who's been home the whole time is insulted, isn't he? And he complains to his dad and he says, hey, I've been here the whole time. I've worked the whole time. I've done what you've wanted me to the whole time. And you've never thrown a party for me. Where's the beef, dad? Junior comes home, having squandered your wealth, and you throw a party. What about me? And the dad's words are insightful, and they're to the point. And he says, son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. In other words, you want a party? Have a party. What do you want? The difference in the mentality here is the older brother is at home, but he does not know his dad. He doesn't know that his dad is generous. And, and good, and willing to give him anything he wants, not stingily, not a minimum. Junior, what would you like? What would you like? I realize for myself I'm oftentimes like the older brother. You know, I put my shoulder to the plow, and I'm pushing, and I'm working hard. And you know what? After a while, I start feeling resentful. This is not God's fault. It's not because God's loading on me more work than I can handle. It's not because God's holding out. A lot of times it's just because... I'm not seeing my father the way I should. I'm thinking like the disciples about minimums. What could we get by with here? Or I'm thinking like the older brother. Here, I've got to do all these things. And there's nothing from dad for me. But I've got to keep working, you know. Jesus is generous. He's generous. His provision here is overflowing. It's full. It's not stingy. And we should get a clue like the older brother needed to, that dad says to us, and Joe, this reminded me of when you shared your testimony and your story, 
that uh, I wouldn't phrase it in these terms, but the world is your oyster, so to speak. This isn't true for us all the time, and it's certainly not true for Christians around the world all the time. But our dad is generous, overflowingly generous. You know, elsewhere in the Gospels it says, you know, you give and what does God do for you? He gives pressed down, shaken together. In other words, fill it up as tight as it'll go, overflowing. That's the picture here this morning in this feeding of the 5,000. That's what Jesus does for this group. And I just think it's important for us to remember our dad is generous. He's not stingy. He certainly does not always give us what we want. I mean, we pray for wants and desires oftentimes that for his reasons and for the best reasons he knows aren't in our best interest. And he doesn't always follow through on those. But he's a generous dad. And he says, just like he did to the older brother, you're always with me. That's the first thing. You're with me. We're together. That's the priority. And all that I have is yours. What would you like? What do you need? That's the God we love and serve. He's not stingy. He's generous. Uh, Look at the way these folks respond. Look at verse 14. They say, this is of a truth the prophet who is to come into the world. And if you were a good Jew and knew your Old Testament, you knew that uh, Moses had said that God was going to send a prophet. Israel had had many prophets. But none of them were the prophet. And everyone knew this. So you remember Jesus says to his disciples elsewhere, who do people say that I am? Well, some think you're Elijah because Malachi said Elijah would return. Some people say you're the prophet. And that's what these folks today think. This must be the prophet Moses said would come. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 18 what he said. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, God speaking now, and I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him, and it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, you... You ignore this prophet at your expense. It's going to be costly to ignore this prophet sent from God. So Moses had said, God's going to raise up another guy like me. A prophet, the prophet. And when he speaks, you better listen. So these folks have followed Jesus. They've seen the miracles of healing, more than John has recorded. And they've just seen this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And they say... This must be him. And they're right. Now, let me walk you through just the elements of this story so that you know how much John wants us to know that this is the prophet. Jesus is the prophet. Listen to the elements of this story. Jesus leaves the south of Judah and goes north to the wilderness with a multitude in tow. Moses leaves Egypt in the south to go north towards the promised land with a multitude in tow. Jesus goes into an uninhabited wilderness. And this is, by the way, up on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus grew up, if this is the Sea of Galilee, Jesus grew up over here in Nazareth. And some of the other guys, they grew up fishermen around the top, the northwest end and the northeast end of the Sea of Galilee. 
Bethsaida, one of their key cities, they're probably outside into the wilderness east of Bethsaida. So they're out in the wilderness north of the sea. Sorry, uh, archaeology. They're doing archaeological digs in Bethsaida. Uh, still, right now, going on. <clears throat> anyway, what does that have to do with what I'm telling you about... Uh, Let's see, the wilderness. Okay, they're outside the Sea of Galilee to the northeast in the wilderness. Uh, Israel, of course, follows Moses into the wilderness. Uh, The story takes place here in John 6. It takes place at the time of the Passover, John tells us. And, of course, Moses leads Israel out of Egypt after the first Passover. Jesus goes up onto a mountain. Moses goes up onto a mountain, Mount Sinai. Those who follow Jesus have no provision for food. Those who follow Moses have no provision for food. Jesus miraculously feeds the multitudes bread and fish. Moses miraculously feeds Israel bread in the form of manna and meat in the form of quail. Jesus provides enough food for all with leftovers. Moses provides enough meat for leftovers. I don't know if you remember the story. It's actually quite gross when the quail come in. But anyway, enough said. And if we keep going out of today's passage and the rest of the story, directly following this, Jesus will walk across the top of the water. Moses will walk through the Red Sea. So when John writes this story, the people's conclusion is, this is the prophet. And John says, yes, he is exclamation point. I mean, there's one common element after another in this story so that we know Jesus is the prophet. And you remember, essentially in the end, John wants us to believe that Jesus is God the Son and the Son of God and believing will have life in his name. But in John 6, he's making sure that we have no doubt Jesus is the prophet that Moses said would come. Look at verse 15. The people have correctly identified Jesus as the prophet, the prophet Moses promised. But look what happens at verse 15. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now they understand he's the prophet. They get that much right. It doesn't say what they said after this. But for whatever reason, Jesus knows that they're going to want to make him, by force as it were, king. They want to put him at the head of an army. Now remember, at this time, Israel is a surrogate nation. They're under the aegis or the oversight of the Romans. They're not a free nation. So they serve someone else. They pay Roman taxes. And of course, for any uh, good Jew at the time, The one thing they wanted more than anything else was to be free of Roman occupation. We talk about, people talk about occupying uh, Iraq today or something, you know. Iraq doesn't know what occupation is. If if America's presence, there's occupation. Um, The Jews knew what occupation was. Roman leaders oversaw their country. They paid Roman taxes. They didn't have options on government forms and one thing and another. They did it Rome's way. And so... In this day and before this and after this, it was always an issue of, can we get rid of Rome? And in fact, if you remember, not long after Jesus' death, and it's not recorded in the New Testament because it's not um, directly related to the progress of the church, 
But in 70 AD, it's because the Jews try to get rid of the Romans that Israel is extinguished as a nation. Just less than 40 years after the events we're reading about, when they try to kick the Romans out, uh, it's to their own demise. Uh, Rome destroys Jerusalem entirely. They kicked the Jews out of Israel. Uh, they eventually destroyed the Jews' last stronghold at Masada. And did you know Jerusalem was rebuilt later by the Romans, but it was called, uh, I think it was Capitolina, and Jews were forbidden by law to go there. So the Jews were always looking to get rid of the Romans, and that's what they're thinking here. And here's Jesus, here's a prophet, we'll make him our king, and behind him we'll get rid of the Romans. <clears throat> Jesus knows what that, that that is what they're about, and so it says, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. He does not give them the option of making him king. The language here, it's interesting, is similar to other gospel accounts. If you remember in Luke, when Jesus introduces himself back in his hometown as the Messiah, when he reads Isaiah 60 and says he's it, <clears throat> They take him to the brink of a hill and they're going to throw him off for blasphemy. And the text says he passed through their midst. It doesn't say that he knocked people down. It just says he walked through their midst and walked away. It's the same thing here. And in each one of these occurrences, what you have are people who want to do something to Jesus that he doesn't want done. Now, Jesus is the king and he is the prophet, but this was not the right time for him to rule as king. You remember the first time, in fact, in John 3, in John 1 and 2, John 3, remember how John the Baptist described Jesus? He didn't say, here's the king of the world. He didn't say, here's the promised prophet or king. He said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, Jesus does present himself as the Messiah, but of course he's rejected by the nation. And it's a good thing for us, isn't it? Because his first role when he came here was not to be the conquering king. He will wear this hat, and he, he'll wear it well. And you know, if you read Zechariah 14, if you read Revelation 19, we see Jesus at the right time, in the right way, donning the crown and the robes of a king, riding a horse, not a donkey, a beast of war, not, a, not the beast of the time of peace, riding down and putting down the armies of the earth to claim his land and his kingdom. But it wasn't now. It wasn't here, and he knew that. You remember we talked about out of Ecclesiastes related to time? that one of the things related to living on earth is that there's a right time for each thing and there's lots of wrong times for things also. Jesus is the prophet, he is the king, but this was not the time for him to rule as king. This was the time for him to be the sin bearer, our substitute who goes to the cross and bears the penalty due us for sin. And so this would have been a fiasco for us if Jesus hadn't died for our sins, if he hadn't fulfilled the commission to go be the Lamb of God, you know what? It would be meaningless in the end if he ruled as king. 
Because we would live in his kingdom and die and go to hell forever. Because we each still bear the penalty of our own sin. So these folks, at least temporarily, recognize in Jesus he is the prophet. And John makes sure by the construction of the story that we know, yes, that's right. He is the prophet. He is Israel's king. But it's not the time to put on the crown. Not the gold crown anyway. Jesus knows this is the time to wear the crown of thorns, of the sin bearer, not the crown of a king to rule. So it's a good thing that Jesus did not do the right thing at the wrong time. He knew his father's timing. He knew why he was here this first time. And it says, in fact, later in Hebrews, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You know, it would have been easier for him, certainly, to have accepted role as prophet and priest and king at this point. But for us, in the end, it would be meaningless because we wouldn't get to enjoy him forever. We have a brief life on earth, and that would be the end of that. So Jesus recognized what they were about, and it simply says he withdrew. He walked the other way because the time was not right. So in the feeding of the 5,000, John says a couple things. It's another indication that Jesus is who he said he was. And like Moses, God performs these miraculous events through him to stamp him as God's representative. John makes sure we know he's identified directly with Moses, God's deliverer for Israel, Jesus, the deliverer for Israel and for all humanity in the end. We see that God is not stingy in his giving. He's generous. In fact, it's interesting too. remember that the people who hail him as prophet here, as we read through the rest of John 6, what will most of them do before the end of the chapter? They'll walk the other way, turn their backs, and won't give him the time of day again. These are fickle followers. But even to fickle followers, what does Jesus do? He feeds them. He gives them more than enough. He's generous. He doesn't hold back. And then in the end, he says, he's ready to be king, but only at the right time. Only when the father says, this is the time, is he willing to take on his kingship and wear the crown of a king. Right now, he contents himself with the right thing, being the sin bearer at the right time, the time that he's going to the cross. Um, It's a good thing for us that he did. Let's pray. Lord, thanks that your son came first as sin bearer, as the suffering servant of Isaiah, not of the ruling king. Lord, thanks that Jesus was willing to walk the humble path of servanthood before you crowned him with the crown of a ruler. Lord, I'm delighted to know that because your word says so, Jesus comes as conquering king in the future, that he wears a gold crown and a red robe, that he rides a white horse, and that he puts down the rebellion of the earth with a rod of iron. He makes all things new. He does all the right things in all the right ways at all the right time. Lord, when we're tempted to be confused at what you're causing or allowing in our life, help us to remember that you're good and that you're generous and that, Lord, you do accommodate for us the right things 
at the right times. Help us to be like you in all the ways we can, Lord, especially to be generous and ready to share, Paul said to Christians. Help us to be like you, that when we give, Lord, we give abundantly, generously, not stingily, not meanly, or with any kind of resentment. Help us to follow you in doing the right thing at the right time. In Jesus' name, amen.